Hi everyone, Paul Unger here, editor of Placetech. Um, today's a bit of a different one, um, a bit more of a personal story rather than a look at a particular product or business. Have you ever wondered what is in the mind of an angel investor? Um, we hear a lot about and from venture capitalists. Um, what about the little guys behind them that back startups, perhaps when nobody else has heard of them or they haven't really got going yet? Uh, today, I'm joined by Barry Heptonstall, who is a serial early stage angel investor and has become something of a property tech specialist, uh, now working more formally with Pi Labs, among others. Um, he has more than 60 investments under his belt. Um, I saw Barry's name on a press release for our friends at Bright Spaces uh, when they raised 1.5 million euros recently. And I thought, I wonder what it's like being an angel investor. Um, so, Barry, you're going to tell us all about life as an angel. Is that right? I think so. I'll try my best to do that, Paul. Thank you very much for having me on. <laughs> no, you're welcome. You're welcome. So tell us how, how you got started. It was a bit of a strange and, um, I guess, fortuitous journey, really, that I went on. Um, I did computer science at university and I joined IBM as an engineer. Um, I ended up working there for 30 years. So I'm one of those strange, very old fashioned, I guess I could be a unicorn myself in that respect. Um, one of those rare people that spent their whole or pretty much their whole working career working for one company. Um, but one of my colleagues when I was there suggested I listen to a podcast, which is called um, This Week in Tech, which is a bunch of grumpy uh, Silicon Valley journalists who come on and complain about everything. And it was quite, quite amusing. Um, but they mentioned another podcast, which I've come to love called This Week in Startups which is run by a guy called Jason Calacanis, who is also a, an angel investor. In fact, he was one of the first backers of Uber. Um, and he does this show where a few times a week he interviews founders, venture capitalists. And I just started watching that. This was back in 2012 kind of era. Um, and I found it fascinating. Um, and one week he had on the founder of a company called Calm, which you've probably heard of, um, Mind State, the, the, the meditation mental health app. and um, he said to, to to Alex Chu from Calm, oh, I'd quite like to invest in you. And I found myself thinking, I'd like to invest in you too. Um, and it was a few weeks later that, that Jason then wrote to all his super fans, which I was, was and still am one, um, saying, hey, would anyone like to join me in investing in this company? So I actually had to sell some IBM shares to do it, which was kind of nerve wracking and strange at the time. I, I think I'm somebody who originally was very conservative and careful. I mean, my, my parents still live in the same house they bought before I was born um, up in Edinburgh. And um, so selling IBM shares to invest in this mindfulness startup, which is not something that I would necessarily have, have kind of gone for back in those days, was, was a bit of a, an odd thing to do, I suppose. That's quite a culture shift, isn't it? From the, the cautious to the risky. Um, as, as you could say. And, and, and you'd, you'd all already by then, had you uh, left I IBM because you had a, a, a venture yourself, didn't you? In I did. Yeah, on the side on the side of working for IBM, I actually left IBM this year, um, back in February. So um, now I was still in IBM very much at the time, doing a full time job, flying around Europe and, and the world, and um, I was really running IBM's mainframe computer business was the, the thing I was responsible for. It's quite a big and an important part of the company even now. Um, but my um, then wife and I decided to buy a, a big crazy house in Surrey. And so we, uh, it was back, in, back in those days, it was when 
the banks had gone a bit crazy. And uh, back in 2006, a few years before um, I started angel investing, the banks were lending people as much money as you wanted to borrow. So we bought a, a big um, house in Surrey and I proceeded then eventually to turn it into a wedding venue. So that was, that was something that kind of occupied my evenings and weekends, dashing home from work, um, quickly lighting the fire, lighting some candles and then putting the music on and then showing prospective brides and grooms around the house and telling, yeah. them, about, telling them about weddings. Very, very different. And you must have learned a lot along the way. Um, and you did you did an MBA in, in Manchester, um, so, so really sort of invested in, in, in the business thinking as, as, as well. I think you mentioned before um, when we spoke previously. Um, so, so Calm, that was the first one. Did, did, did you expect to make money? What's, what's happened with that, uh, that investment? <laughs> um, I guess I hoped I was going to make some money, otherwise I probably wouldn't have done it. Uh, I just been become really interested in this whole world of startups and, and Silicon Valley, and the idea that that if a few people could create something that could potentially be transformative in the world, uh, which Calm has gone on to be, extremely important, especially through the the troubles a lot of people have had with the pandemic. Um, and so, yes, I obviously I hope to make money. I actually invested in Calm when, and this is public knowledge, um, when they were valued at about four and a half million dollars. And they raised money most recently at $2.1 billion. So that's increased quite substantially, that investment. That's a nice uplift. Yeah. It's probably one of the biggest multiples, or probably is the biggest multiple I've had. Might not be the biggest amount because back in those days, I wasn't investing very much money. Um, What started as a bit of a hobby back then has become more and more serious as the years have gone by, which means I've started putting more and more money into, um, into the companies I'm backing. Right. Is there a typical um, amount or what, what's what's the range, would, would you say, over, over that time? Well, I mean, back back in the beginning, it was literally a few thousand dollars. Um, although a few thousand dollars times 220 ends up being quite a lot. Um, nowadays, I typically am doing something like 25 to 40,000 pounds each time, Yeah, which is a lot of money and I recognize it is. Um, in fact, actually, at one point, I'd invested all my net worth. So when I bought the house that I'm sitting in now, I actually bought it. I probably could have just about afforded to buy the whole thing outright. Uh, but I took the biggest mortgage I could possibly take, take and um, and invested the rest. I, I sort of used the word bet, and it, it kind of is a bet. I bet all that money on startups um, because I'd realized, I think, that People don't take enough risk. And this is this is one of the things that I've learned on my journey. As I said, I started from this very conservative kind of background with my parents still owning the house they bought before I was born. Um, and actually, people don't take enough risk. I'm 53 now um, and I hope to work for quite a bit longer. Uh, but you can be retired for a very, very long time. And that can be quite an expensive thing being retired. Um, if you want to have a nice standard of living when you're retired, modern day pensions don't really deliver the kind of return that you need to be able to ha- maintain a, you know, the kind of standard of living that I've had being like you know, um, senior manager or whatever. I want to continue that similar style of, of, of lifestyle. Um, and so I wanted to take more risk, which sounds a bit crazy. Um, and I'd learned from doing the wedding venue um, where again, I'd borrowed a huge amount of money and that had worked out that actually taking risk can 
lead to returns if you are careful and thoughtful and professional and know what you're doing, do things well. Um, so that's really been my approach to it. Yeah, yeah. So, so they're, they're, they're your pension, are they, is uh, the, the investments? Um, yeah, I mean, I've got a pension too, luckily, because I did 30 years at IBM. So I'm in a fortunate position. And to be honest, I'm doing it partly for the, the investment. And you, you asked earlier about why I did it. What I've come to realize is I, I like the game or the sport of doing this. Um, I like being the person who identifies um, the up and coming uh, founder of a company and that identifies that an idea is a good one and it's going to work. And then I like to then be part of that journey, a little tiny part of the journey, you know, 1% or half of 1% just sitting on the sidelines um, being part of the journey. But it's incredibly good fun doing that, helping helping when I can. Absolutely. Talk us through the process then. How, do, how does how does something come across your your desk, and then what what does what happens next? It, it's a it's a number of different ways, really. Um, so, obviously, people now now approach me because I've got a little bit of a profile on the internet, um, and people that are looking to start a company and, and raise funds will go out and search. There's a website called Angel List and um, angels list themselves on there as the name implies uh, so that's a good place for startups to go to, to find potential investors um, i also speak regularly at virgin startup which is um, richard branson's not for not for profit uh, organization that helps uh, people that are starting new businesses of all kinds not just tech and then i get things referred to me by other angels or venture capitalists or other founders so people who know people will quite often send someone to have a conversation with me. But to be honest, out of all of these, the, the one I haven't mentioned yet is probably the best one, which is I work very closely with um, Pi Labs, who you mentioned at the beginning. Um, so I started out as a mentor originally, um, just helping some of the companies there, particularly around sales. So uh, my career at IBM was, was in sales. I started as an engineer, but I quickly went into sales and then sales management. And quite often you get founders of a business who come from a technical background um, or maybe an industry background from the property industry, but they haven't really done sales before. Um, so I started with PyLabs helping out as a mentor. And then last year I became a venture partner, which is like kind of a part-time partner um, where your job is to help the, help the, the fund in any way you can um, and, and to help any of their companies with advice and guidance, helping to choose new companies to invest in. So, so how do you start to assess when when a, a name pops up, some random misspelled tech word, as you know, funny <laughs> funny brand names that you get in technology, something lands, and um, do you look at the product? Do you want to meet the person? Uh, what goes goes through your mind? What, what what's your sort of typical journey after that? There are quite a lot of things that you're trying to assess, really. It, the most important thing, and I think most investors will tell you this, is the team. And so who are the people that are creating this business? Um, what's their background? What experience do they have? Do they have a knowledge of this particular industry? So for example, I'm an investor along with PyLabs in Apreo, which is um, an appraisal platform where property developers can create their financial model of, um, of the site that they're thinking of developing, and then they can build all the financials around borrowing 
how much money they need to borrow and what stages they need to borrow and then repay that money. Um, the founder of, founder of that company, Daniel Norman, actually worked for a bank and he was on the receiving end of appraisals that were coming from developers into the bank to ask to borrow money from the bank. Um, they were coming in all kinds of different formats and with mistakes in them. Some of them were built in spreadsheets. Every spreadsheet in the world has a mistake in it. Um, so Daniel realized there had to be a better way. So it's things like that that I'm looking for. Um, do the founders have like a, a, a real insight from something that they've seen in the world, often something that's wrong that needs to be put right? Um, so and, number one is team, for sure. And, and how personal is, is that? Is it, it, you want to see the whites of their eyes and see hear the passion in their voice when they're talking about it is, or is it more sort of clinical and cold than that um no it's very much personal um very very much personal because i'm trying to assess whether people are driven to succeed how important is them to to do this thing are they only doing it for money it's like before when you asked me did i just invest for money and the answer is no actually i, I do it because i love doing it and i get a lot of energy um, and excitement from doing it. And it's the same with founders. Why are they building this thing? So I sometimes use the example of, um, you know, did you build a care solution for the elderly because your grandmother couldn't find anyone to care for her at home? That kind of thing. If you've got a reason in your heart for why you want to build something, why you have to will it into existence, because making a startup is really, really difficult. You know, it's, there's a lot of highs and a lot, a lot of lows. Um, and what I want is obviously is to back people that won't give up, you know, won't give up when the first problem comes along, but will actually find a way around it. Are you looking for something? Are, are there are there tells? Is there an aha moment where you go, right, yes? That's a great word. Um, I'm smiling because you said uh, tells, and that's a word that I use quite a lot. What are the little tells? In, and you actually get this in sales as well. When you're speaking to a customer, when they something they say or just a look on their face can be a little tiny tell that you've, hit on something that they really, really want, um, or the converse is true, you've hit on something that they really, really don't want. Um, so yes, I'm looking for tells all the time. The, the simplest and most obvious one, and the one that I look on a lot, um, is customers. So do they have people using the product? And if so, how much do they use the product? How much do they love the product? How mad would they be if the product disappeared? Um, you know, how critical is it to them and their business that they have this thing going forward? So that that's an obvious tell um, if people have bought the product and are using it a lot. Because you, you do hear about these ludicrous um, uh, valuations of pre-revenue uh, companies or companies that have never made a profit. Um, you know, do you have certain parameters that you 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 would own, you value customers so much you would only invest if they've got revenue coming in, or is it looser than that? It's looser than that because you're trading a lot of different variables. Nothing's ever going to be like 100% unless you're unless you're investing in Google, which you can do, go and buy some shares on the on the stock exchange. Um, nothing's going to be 100%, and so you're trading off on all the variables. And I have invested quite often. Um, like, in fact, I've been the first investor, You're Welcome, which is also a Pylabs company. Um, I backed as the first investor, literally the first check. In fact, I've got share certificate number one, which was very nice of the founders to give me that. Um, and they built this amazing tablet, which is used in um, Airbnb and vacation rental, corporate rental properties. 
So it's kind of like hotel TV where you can order stuff through the tablet and you can watch videos about how to work the coffee machine and get recommendations about where the best restaurant is nearby. Yeah. Um, and that's been very successful in, in the UK and also internationally, actually. Um, and the thing that I liked about them, so they had no revenue. They had a, a, a product, um, but they, they weren't actually renting it out at that point. They rent the tablet and then they also make money now out of um, selling things through the tablet. They didn't have any revenue, but the, the founders of that business um, had actually knocked up a working prototype and put it in their own house when they'd gone away on holiday, put it on Airbnb, and then had, had a look at the results. Did people use it? And what were people using it for? Um, it turned out that the property, was, which was near Waterloo, which is also near central London, they thought that people would use it to go and watch shows in central London. Uh, so their Airbnb listing was all about we're near to central London, we're near theatre land, you can walk over the bridge and go and watch Mamma Mia or whatever. Um, it turned out actually that because it was near Waterloo, people were actually using it to get to Twickenham, to the rugby. So these kind of in insights, they, so there's a little tell. So they found something through their product that their customer's customer, so the people that were using the property, um, were, were doing something interesting. And so because of that now, the Airbnb hosts that use the tablet can customize what the, their listing is on Airbnb. So they can get a much, much better resolution on who they're advertising to. In fact, they could put the prices up on a rugby weekend, even though the house is in the middle of London, if you were still renting that out, you could put your prices up on a rugby weekend because you know that people are going to rent that to go to Twickenham. That's really granular, isn't it? It's, uh, it's a very particular story. It um, is. But they're all like that. They yeah. all Every story has that kind of little thing, a little gem right at the heart of it. And, and how, how important is it to know the tech when you get to the stage of getting the getting the pen out and the checkbook? Is, uh, or do you, do you trust in others that they know what they're doing? Or I guess IBM, you know your way around tech and you're an engineer. Yeah, I think it's, for me, it's quite important. But there are, it's, I think it's really important, and perhaps for your listeners, it's important to know there are lots of different types of investors. And I think the thing that's most important of all is that you bring some value to the startup. So nowadays, there are so many people wanting to invest. Um, and there are crowdfunding platforms, Cedars and Crowdcube, those kind of things, um, lots of venture capital. So there are lots and lots of ways that founders can get money nowadays. And actually, angels are in a little bit of a competition to get founders to take their money. The best founders should always have a choice as to who they take money from. Um, so you call it smart money, which means you get money, but you also get something else in addition. So. Yes, I know a bit about technology and a fair bit about technology products and how to build technology products. Um, but the the thing I bring really is is sales knowledge. So helping the founders to get those first few sales, to talk through with them a sales campaign that they're working on. And so this is not this is not so much business to consumer like Calm would be. This is business to business. You know, how do we approach a company? with a solution? How do we go to a large construction company with our solution? How do we persuade them to use that product? Um, and then what do we do afterwards? So um, I, in the early days of a company called Fault Fixers, I helped their founder, Tom O'Neill, who's a really smart guy, chartered accountant by background. Um, and he, he's built a solution, which is a property maintenance solution. So it's kind of a, on the borders of facilities management where you can report problems in a building and then someone will come and fix them. And it's all done mobile. So mobile apps for the people who are reporting the problems, 
mobile apps for the um, operators you're going to operatives are going to come and fix the thing um, so he's had a, a big win recently at um, Hallmark which is a chain of about 20 care homes um, so great you've had a fantastic win and they're doing a really good job for Hallmark but what do you do as a result of that what he's done is he's made a, um, a case study video with the, the man who's the head of property maintenance for the group um, talking about it and that so you've, you've got a win then you turn that win into something like a case study put that on your website publish it on social media linkedin etc and then that can drive 10 more wins do the same again so the sales there's marketing there's a, an awful lot to this um and i just try and add value wherever i can really yeah we we, we see an awful lot of uh, material come through from people and they, they they try and describe what they do and i think maybe they've got too close to their subject and they've just ended up waffling and it doesn't really mean anything and you look on the website it's all full of grandiose mission statements about saving the world and making the planet a better place but what do you do and and how can property people relate to it show as a case study show as a customer and a testimonial and what they, how they used it it's very very important and I'm sometimes surprised how poor the comms and the marketing still is in uh, in, in in prop tech that's i think that's a place where um if any of your listeners are thinking of investing in a prop tech business and they, if they come from the property industry that's a place where they can help the company to much more clearly explain and identify where is the value what's the value proposition for the customer so Fault Fixers that I mentioned, for example, has a number of investors who were CEOs of FTSE 250 facilities management companies. So they've actually invested in Fault Fixers. So now Tom, when he needs advice about that industry, can turn to people who are world experts in that field. Um, yeah. And it's, it sounds like you, you obviously enjoy giving back and, and giving the advice. Um, it's not just about putting money in. Um, how much do founders actually reach out and 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 ask and do they listen when uh, when they ask or are they just charging ahead uh no they no they do they do re um they do reach out i mean it tend it tails off over time um as the company gets bigger and more successful they're moving on and upwards to more sophisticated people than me i suppose i would honestly admit um you know when you get silicon valley vcs investing in you like a, a quite a number of my investments have now you know they're looking to investment they're looking to people to advise them about things like ipoing on the stock exchange you know appointing a merchant bank to help them to sell to um you know to a bigger company and those are things that they would need different people to advise them on um i mean I, i'm always very cautious well i try and kind of say every time i give advice that five percent of it will be good i, I don't know which five percent um, and it's the founder's job to listen to everything i've got to say and then to put it through a sieve and then to decide you know, which what 95% to throw away and what 5% is, is going to be good. There's normally something good in there somewhere. Yeah. Um, and every investor will probably give the founder different advice to go in a different direction, to do a different thing. And it literally is like putting it in a sieve and filtering it and saying, these are the things, These here's some gems, here's some really good ideas about what we could be doing. And I guess it still has to fit in with their vision, let alone the business plan. Um, and not be totally. taken down every every path that somebody yeah. presents and different you ask 12 people and have 12 different paths you can quickly get lost i was just gonna say one of the biggest mistakes i made early on was projecting myself onto the startup thinking when i was investing i was thinking if i was doing this what would i do 
and usually I'm not nearly knowledgeable enough to actually run that business, but what would I do? Um, and then of course the, invest, the, the founders do something completely different. And so I've learned that I shouldn't project myself onto them, but listen much more about what their ideas are, maybe guide them a little bit, but at the end of the day, it's their business, not mine, you know, and all the, all the glory and success belongs to them because all the hard work's been done by them. You, you, you must feel some pride, some satisfaction when you, you, you see the successes and the, the, the real hits that, that take off. I do. Yeah. I mean, it's quite often it's on LinkedIn. They will say that they're raising, um, I've had several this month that have done that and gone out and raised money from uh, more money and growing and hiring people. Actually, that's a really good one. Hiring people's so nice to see. I mean, I've got investments in companies now that have hired hundreds of people. And, you know, when you see pictures of them, you think, gosh, I was a little tiny part of that. You know, I, I contributed one idea right back at the beginning that helped them to you know, steered them a little bit on the path. Absolutely. Giving, yeah, job creation, giving people a chance uh, is, is, is a very special part of, of, of business. Um, so wh- where are we then in, 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 the, in the market? And, you know, 10 years in, how has it changed? Where do you see uh, the property technology field at the moment? It's, there's a lot of people saying, oh, there's too many companies. There's thousands of startups. It's... Um, you know, we're at the peak of expectations. What's your take? I think we're probably still quite early in this revolution, this technology built revolution. I think um, I really saw it when I went to conferences in the kind of 2013, 14, 15 kind of timescale. I went to quite a few conferences in America where they had tech startups pitching on stage, um, raising money and presenting on their business and then asking people to invest in them. And it was really, really obvious when you see 50 companies one after another, how technology is transforming absolutely everything. And we we know that in our own personal lives before the pandemic as well. You know, you drive to the car park to go to London, you park your car, you pay on an app, you check the train time on an app, you buy the ticket on an app, you get on the train, you, you know, you buy a coffee, you use your, put your phone to pay for the coffee, get on the train, you read the newspaper on your phone, you do your email and it, before half an hour of the morning's gone by, you've used 10 different services, um, 10 different fields. So it's natural that it will um, transform property as well in probably every every way we can possibly imagine. And of course, the pandemic is arriving at, at a similar time and changing things too. So there's going to be quite an interesting future, I think, coming up over the next few years as technology and the repercussions of pandemic and working from home kind of come together. Yeah. Do you, do you see a lot of consolidation, a lot of M&A activity in the next couple of years? I think that'll happen a little bit, um, possibly less than you think. I think there's actually property such a big space. I mean, I don't have to tell any of your listeners about that. I don't have to lecture them on how the, the, the vast differences between all the different fields in property it's a little bit like saying finance, you know, there's so many different businesses and areas, specialities and niches. I mentioned a preo, that's kind of a niche. It's not even to do with residential. It's like a niche of developing. It's the money side of raising the money to build the houses that then is part of the residential um, process. So I think there's a lot of scope still and a lot of um, runway. We're certainly seeing at PyLabs a, a host of companies and we, we have hundreds of companies every year which apply to our accelerator. Um, I think last year it was 600, of which we chose seven. 
God. something of that order of magnitude. So, um, you know, it's hundreds of companies that then a tiny number are then backed by you know, a VC firm and then go on. Uh, then of those, most but not all will then go on to have more runs rounds of, of, of financing um, and then on to bigger success. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you do still see some areas that are very congested, though, don't you? Um, I'm thinking that there's a lot of tenant engagement apps. There's a lot of people doing sort of office space, occupancy, utilization, monitoring with sensors these days, um, especially with the whole future of work thing. There's a lot of building management systems and energy monitoring, software competing. Um, could it be that we end up with a lot of of people in the same fields in the same way as there are there is a very fragmented diffuse property industry with lots and lots of companies that are all slightly different to each other, um, which is often one of the complaints, if you like, one of the problems with technology being slowly adopted in, in property, which is an old rehearsed argument, is that there are thousands and thousands of property companies to convince, whereas with fintech and online banking, you had to convince half a dozen high street banks and then you change the world. Um, will, will we end up with with a with a tech side of property that reflects the the, the multitude of companies in in property, or do you think there will emerge some big big winners in each field? I think well, first of all, the world's a very big place, isn't it? So, you know, it's certainly one of the things I've I've understood as I've been doing this investment, uh, and with the world's huge, and the internet's huge, and building a piece of software. Um, you could build a piece of software, publish it on the internet, and overnight someone in Australia signed up to use it. And someone the next night, someone in America signed up to use it. It's quite a remarkable thing. Um, but yes, I mean, one would expect that there will be winners. I mean, the, the nature of software is that it does play to winners because the bigger you get, the more money you get, the more money you get, the more you can invest, the better the product becomes particularly with this thing, what we call software as a service, software delivered over the internet, which is one of the things that I really specialize in, SaaS, business to business SaaS, um, that as you get more clients, you get more money. As you get more money, you make the product better, which gets you more clients, you know, build out your sales team. And so I think that there will be some big winners, but I also think there will be lots and lots of niche companies that can make a very, very nice living out of you know, either a particular market and obviously there's things like regulation around property and laws that might mean it's difficult to get into or into a particular market or get out of a market if you've built a solution for one market. Um, so I think I think all of this is possible, to be honest. Um, but in some ways, we don't know. And that's part of the fun of, of doing this. Um, and it's running at such a pace that um, being a part of it and watching it and seeing how it evolves is is really part of the joy of, of doing this. Yeah, and I should have asked earlier, how, how come you got into property? I mean, you could have gone anywhere in, and invested in anything and become a specialist in uh, different fields from, from your background. What, um, what, what took you down the property path? Yeah, I mean, I have got a lot of investments in other things too, but property of my 60, maybe a third are in property, something of that order of magnitude, and most of those alongside Pylabs. Um, and at property, I mean, obviously Greyfriars, which was the wedding venue um, that I created, that that led me into property quite seriously. And to understand and to, to do that, you had to do a lot of property stuff. 
you know, planning permissions. I developed a um, that has quite a lot around things like planning permissions and um, obviously running the event side of that. I put quite a bit of technology in. We had a, a diary room, a Big Brother diary room, where you could record photographs and comments and put it on Facebook. Um, advertising on Google AdWords. So That's that great. kind of got me into property, I suppose. Um, but also I mentioned Fault Fixers, where I helped Tom um, to start that that company up in the early days. And so that took me into, into the sector. And the thing about angel investing, and maybe it's true of life, talking a bit more meta really, but if you pull a piece of thread and you just keep pulling it and keep pulling it and keep pulling it, you're not quite sure what's on the end of it. Um, and what I've tried to do with the investing thing is just say yes to every opportunity. So I was a venture partner with another um, VC firm before Emerge Education or EdTech. Um, and when PyLabs asked me to be a mentor, I just said yes. And I turned up and did my presentation about sales. And um, then I helped a few of the companies. Then I backed your welcome. And that just, I just, it just carried on. You know, I didn't set out back at the beginning when I invested in Calm to do 60 or 100 plus, which is what I'll end up doing. Um, I set out really just to do Calm. And I said yes to that. Then I did another one, another one. And then before I knew it, I've got 60. So that's kind of how it's worked. And how many would, how many hits, how many misses would you say? Would you? Uh... That's a good question. Uh, interestingly, a lot of, back to this thing about um, taking a little bit of risk. A lot of people say to me, how many of your companies have failed? And I always say, well, that's the wrong question. You, you asked it the right way, Paul, because you said, how many are hits? Um, and it's certainly true now that I'm far enough into this to see companies that are kind of breaking away from the pack. Um, but quite a lot of those are also the early, earlier ones. So something like Brightspaces that I've only invested in this year, um, which is very, already proving very, very successful um, company from Romania. They haven't had the chance to break away yet. I mean, they're running very fast and they're signing up customers, a lot of customers, but they haven't had the chance to. So the earlier ones, right from the very beginning of the journey, have had more time to to do that. Um, so I, if, if you group them into a group, there's probably a dozen that are breakout hits, a dozen that are doing pretty well, a dozen that are okay, a dozen that are really early. And I only did it in the last year or so, 18 months. So it's too early to judge. And then maybe a dozen that have failed. Okay. And how long uh, do you stay in for? Uh, as long as I need to. And um, that is that is one of the, the things about this on the, on the risk side, if you like. This isn't like buying shares where you can decide to sell them. If something happens in your life and you want to sell your shares, sell them on the stock market today. The money's in your bank tomorrow. Um, with pri- These are all private companies. And so seven to 12 years is probably a reasonable estimate. Um, I've had the chance to sell some shares in a couple of them. I've done that in two. Both of those were bad decisions. I should have held on to them for longer because those companies have gone on to even more success. Um, quite often you get a chance, even though they're still private companies, as bigger venture capital firms come into later rounds, you can sometimes, as an angel, sell your shares to them. So I've done a little bit of that. Um, and I suppose one of the sensible things I've done is I've taken the money that I got from doing that and I've put it back into other startups again. So I've reinvested it. Um, one thing I've really taken advantage of, which which is, is worth mentioning if people aren't, in case people aren't aware of it, is there's an amazing government tax scheme in the UK, the Enterprise Investment Scheme, EIS, um, and its baby sibling, which is called SEIS. And that's an amazing tax scheme where um, people who pay income tax can claim their income tax back 
if they invest in startups. So when I was at IBM, I was basically getting a bonus for selling some computers, taking that, investing that in startups, claiming the tax back, then taking that money and then my next year's bonus, and then investing all of that in startups, getting half the tax back, sorry, getting half the money back as tax, tax refund, and then putting the money on top and doing it again. And the government created that tax scheme deliberately to create jobs and to create high tech, high paid jobs. And I think it works really, really well. It's been going for a long time and most people don't know about it. Yeah. Enterprise investment scheme. So there's almost like a compound effect investing the interest, which just happens to be the, the sort of tax relief that the government is giving on that. That's, that's yeah. fantastic. And there are lots of other tax benefits too, which I could go into for hours, but there's no capital gains tax when you, when you have a winner, which yeah. is an amazing one. Um, yeah. So I'm just going to continue to do this for as long as I can, really. That's the Absolutely. That's and 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 the the people that you meet today, the teams, are they better than ten years ago? Is is are they were they better ten years ago, or how has it changed over time in terms of the the field that you see before you? Are they better? No, I don't think they're better. That's, that's a hard word. That's hard to judge. I think it's maybe being um, a bit crude there, but I was no, just no, no, you weren't at all. I'm I'm trying to assess in my own mind. Are they better? I mean, I think they understand venture capital and startups much, much better. That's partly because there's so much media now available on the internet, you know, podcasts like your own that people can listen to and learn about what's going on in, in, in an industry or a sector. So they're certainly better prepared. That's, that's certainly true because they've done a lot more research. They've kind of studied what's it like to make a startup. Oftentimes they've worked for a startup before. So they've done a few years working for a startup and then gone on to to create their own one. So yeah, they're certainly better prepared. I think that would be that would be correct to say. So and, and what's next then? Is is there a particular area of interest that really excites you that you're you're, you're looking for companies in? No, almost the opposite. Um, I'm excited by the fact that I don't know what's next and that I'm every time I open a, a a presentation that someone sent me, I have no idea what's going to be inside there. And um, you know, when I go to a meeting or whatever, I it's the joy of finding out and seeing something and thinking, oh, this is clever. Someone's because you could you could almost imagine that everything's already been invented. And I know that people thought that back in Victorian times, you know, things like steam engines. The people were saying, well, everything that could possibly be invented has been invented now. So, but of course, that's never the case. Um, you know, human progress, society's progress, is going to carry on. I think indefinitely. So it's the surprise, it's the joy that I get from finding some new some new thing, um, particularly something that somebody else hasn't found first. Yeah, I'm often surprised when, when I, I meet founders and uh, they, they do their pitch, explain their, their proposition, their product or service. And, and I think, doesn't that exist already? You know, there's a beautiful logic like that should exist. Um, and sometimes there are similar things, but they found a USP. Uh, they've represented an old idea just on a better medium. But you look at apps and using maps and, and GPS and things. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, that's that's part of the, the the wonder of it. And I mean, you talk about um, making a difference. It's, it, there's a lot of money, to say the least, going into climate tech at the moment. Um, and uh, we've got COP26 later this year. UK is hosting at, at, at Glasgow. Um, you know, some 
terrible stats from IPCC and the the images on the climate crisis documentaries and and, and things. Is that is that an area that um, that that you're looking at or have made investments in? Totally. I mean, it's one of PyLab's key investment criteria. Actually, is the ESG um, assessment of a startup and what impact, what positive impact it can have. Um, but I, actually, I'm still working. So when I left IBM, I I looked down my list of of investments and thought, well. I'd like to do something really meaningful um, in whatever way I can, make a contribution. So I actually work, as well as as, as working part-time with PyLabs, I work full-time for a small robot company, which is a farming robot company. Um, so we've made robots that drive around the field, scan the field, look at the crops, and then artificial intelligence um, assesses that and then figures out what's happening with the crop so that the farmer can then decide what to do about it and we, we help to advise the farmer um, on what they should do about treating the crops um, do they need to spray a chemical or do they need to maybe spray it in a smaller part of the field rather than spraying the whole field or could they get away with not using a chemical at all and there's huge advances that are being made in in the in that space it's kind of verging on property um, actually in fact interestingly I, i've had conversations with a very large landowner which is owned a company that's owned by a pension fund one of the world's largest landowners who invest in land and they want their land to be well looked after. So one of the things they're trying to assess is do their tenants look after the farmland well? Because if they rent the farmland for a few years or in America, it can be as short as one season. In fact, um, are they handing the, the land back in as good or better a condition that they rented it or in a worst condition? Yeah. Um, so that's been really, really interesting because small robot company is meaningful. Um, I've been doing a piece of work with them as their chief commercial officer to um, take the, the, the robots that we've made for farmers, but take them to corporate clients. So the large chemical and seed growers, they're actually giant farmers because when they're developing a new product, they're planting the seed and they're spraying the chemical and they're testing to see if it works or not. Um, they could have tens of thousands of test plots across Europe. And so our robots are really scientific instruments for them. That they're using as part of the R&D process that their scientists use to to study the different varieties of seed, for example, that, that they've made. Yeah, fascinating. We'll have to get you get you back on um, another time to to tell us how that's that's going. Well, that would um, be nice. I'll bring my boss on. My my bosses are experts. One of them's a farmer actually, um, and the other one's got a, a background in designing products. So the two of them are, are super smart. That's why I invested in them, um, and then they took me on earlier this year to help them with this this part of piece of the journey yeah absolutely barry heptonstall thank you very much for your time fascinating getting that insight into the 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 mind the thinking of an angel investor and um, thank you for for sharing with us thanks very much to you too and if anyone's starting a new startup contact me on linkedin or or contact pi labs because they're the best Mm